me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you as the word has just been read, and now we seek to preach your word faithfully. We know, Lord, that we are in desperate need of your spirit's power to come and to bring understanding, to bring hearts that are ready to receive, to be receptive with faith and obedience. So, Lord, we know we are inadequate in ourselves. We need your presence. We need your power. Oh, Lord, do all this for your glory and for the good of your church. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you might know I'm a bit of a history buff in that I enjoy dragging my family along to visiting historical sites when we're on vacation and, uh, and also reading history books. Particularly, I like military history and biographies. I love reading biographies. I love reading about great men and women of history because it always challenges me to reflect on how I'm living my life and how I'm stewarding this earthly life that I've been given and and what kind of legacy am I going to leave one day after the Lord calls me home? You know, there's a particular kind of biography that I I enjoy reading. I'm not really interested in the kind that only highlights the strengths of that particular historical figure. You know, I I don't really want to read a puff piece. I like critical biographies that not only tell me why this person should be rightly considered as great and accomplished, but also I like it when they tell me in the various ways that he or she was weak and flawed, because that makes the person that much more relatable. Because no matter how great and accomplished these historical figures were, no matter how impressive their legacy is, it's important to remember that they too were mere mortals. So, for example, Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of the mighty Roman Empire who left the a lasting, long legacy on Western civilization. I mean, this is the month of August, after all. You know who that's named after, right? Well, Caesar Augustus, we're told by historians, especially the historian Suetonius, that Augustus had a peculiar fear of thunder and lightning. He was scared of thunderstorms. Augustus was said to have been scarred for life after he had witnessed someone get struck by lightning only a few feet away from him. And from that point on, when it started raining and thundering, he would be trembling. Or Genghis Khan, the fearsome Mongolian warlord, was reportedly afraid of dogs. King Henry VIII was most likely a hypochondriac. Thomas Jefferson... He had a fear of public speaking. He was pretty good at writing, obviously, but when it came to getting up and speaking in front of people, he would find excuses to avoid that situation. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, not only hid his polio-induced paralysis from the American public, but no one knew until later biographies that he was deathly afraid of fire. At a young age, he witnessed his own aunt catch on fire because of a a lamp accident, and that too scarred him for life. So my point is that these individuals are considered some of the greatest and most accomplished men of world history, and yet all of them possessed, unbeknownst to their contemporaries, an alarming weakness. They were deathly afraid of either a thunderstorm, a fire, of dogs, of germs, or of just speaking 
in front of a crowd. They all kept it under wraps and out of public knowledge, but they could not escape the reality that no matter how great and accomplished they appeared, they have a weakness, one that probably raises deep insecurities within them and could contribute to their downfall if they're not careful. And it's not just the history books that tell us this story, my friends. The headlines today remind us that the great and accomplished leaders of the world have fallen into disgrace because of a hidden weakness that eventually came to light. This happens all the time in politics, in the entertainment industry, in the corporate world, and yes, even in the church. No matter how great and accomplished a person appears, there's always a weakness in them, either physically, mentally, or morally, that could ruin them if left unaddressed. And the point really is that all of us, all of us have a weakness, regardless if you would be considered great and accomplished in the eyes of the world. The only difference is that the great and accomplished have the advantage of more easily covering up or drawing attention away from their weaknesses by flexing their great strengths. But in the end, we're all in the same boat. We all have weaknesses that have the potential to expose us and ruin us. Well, friends, that's where we're going in today's passage. We're going to be looking at the prophet Elisha and his dealings with a commander of the Syrian army, the great and accomplished Naaman. Now, I would argue that Naaman is actually the epitome of all that you and I are chasing after. Whether in your academic career, whether in your professional career, you aspire to be someone like Naaman, a well-respected, highly accomplished individual with a successful career and access to people of even greater wealth and influence. If that doesn't already describe you, it probably describes what many of you are hoping to one day be. We all want to be like Naaman. Yet, I'd argue that you already are more like Naaman than you care to admit. In Elisha's encounter with Naaman, friends, we are going to see four revealing facts about the great and accomplished. If you want to follow along, you can see an outline in your bulletin. Four revealing facts about the great and accomplished. First, the great and accomplished are not as strong as they seem. Second, the great and accomplished are harder to cure than they realize. Third, they are simpler to cure than they can believe. And fourth, once cured, the great and accomplished are more devoted than ever before. Well, let's go into our passage. And the first thing we're going to see in this morning's story is that the great and accomplished are not as strong as they seem. This is evident in the way that Naaman is introduced to us in verse 1. We're told that he's the commander of the army of, of the king of Syria. And during this time in Israel's history, it was a period of division between the kingdom. There was a north and a south kingdom. And Elisha was a prophet serving in the northern kingdom under the guidance of the prophet Elijah, who we looked at last week. Now, at the beginning of 2 Kings, Elijah is taken up to heaven, taken up by a chariot of fire, and now the task of prophesying the word of the Lord to Israel and to her kings falls on the shoulders of Elisha. And it's a very difficult task because the people and the king are hard-hearted. 
They are idolatrous. They serve pagan gods, and, and that idolatry would often result in divine discipline where God would occasionally incite neighboring nations to raid and to attack Israel, and Syria was one of those nations. Let me read again in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, in the original language, that's all one complete sentence. What the author is doing there is he's essentially trying to list out all of Naaman's accomplishments, all of his accolades, all the reasons why he's revered by all the people and by the king. He is the supreme commander. He's the most decorated officer. He's a warrior. He's a mighty man of valor. But he's also a leper. What's the author's point in doing it that way and writing it that way? He's saying you can be at the top of your game. You can have all the success in the world. You can be so accomplished that you are the guy that everyone else wants to be, and yet you can still be miserable. You can be this great man, and yet there's something in your life that makes you feel so small, so weak, so scared. You can be the top dog that everyone looks up to, but if they only knew, if they only knew what deep insecurities you have, if they only knew the debilitating weakness that cripples you, if they only knew the desperate sickness that plagues you, the disheartening fears that grip you, then, well, then you might be exposed and you might lose it all. No matter how put together our lives might look, no one is immune from having it all fall apart. And that was Naaman's biggest fear. He's the great Naaman. In Syria, he's, in Syria, he's a big shot. And yet what kept him up at night was a little spot. We're told that he had a little spot somewhere on his body that showed signs of leprosy. Now, leprosy is not an exact term. In the Bible, it was used to describe a variety of skin diseases. From what we can gather, it usually relates to a scale-like growth or a blotching of your skin. In some cases, the leper would lose feeling in that affected area, and you could eventually lose digits and, and toes, uh, an ear, an ear, a nose. You could start, things could start falling off of you. So naturally, once it starts to show, leprosy would lead to social exclusion and rejection. It was believed to be contagious, and so no one wanted to be around you. You would be cast out by society, even by your friends and family. So Naaman has this spot, this little thing. And at this point, it must not have been very obvious, since he still holds his, his uh, position in the king's court. He's still the top dog, but for how long? His wife knows about it. Some of his servants, including a little slave girl, know. It's not going to be long until this spot begins to spread all over his body, and eventually everyone will know, and he'll no longer be known as the great and accomplished Naaman. He'll be Naaman the leper, Naaman the outcast. This is the point, friends. No matter how successful you are, 
It doesn't matter how accomplished you are, how great you are in the eyes of others, because there's always something in your life that makes you weak. And no one is exempt from this, because that, that something could simply be your sin. Maybe right now, this sin struggle of yours only takes up a, a, a tiny little spot in the totality of your life, but you know it can grow. It can get worse, and it can cause your life to fall apart. We are not as strong as we seem. We are sicker than we suppose. And so that drives all of us to seek for a cure, to seek for an answer, a solution, a cure for our spot. That's what drove Naaman in the story. But what we come to find is that his initial idea of how to get well was distorted by an inflated view of himself. He thought he had the resources. He thought he had the ability to cure himself. But what he came to learn is, that, is what really all the great and accomplished have to learn, namely, that they are harder to cure than they realize. This is the second point. The great and accomplished are harder to cure than they realize. As we mentioned earlier, Israel's idolatry resulted in divine discipline. So that's where God would incite nations against them. And in verse 1, it says that the Lord gave victory to Naaman in, in his exploits, which would have included attacking Israel. And in one such raid, we're told that he captured a little slave girl, a little Jewish slave girl. As the story continues, the slave girl is around Naaman enough to realize that her great and mighty master is actually sick and weak. She knows what he needs. He needs Yahweh. He needs the God of Israel. And so in verse 3, she tells her mistress, Naaman's wife, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. She's referring to Elisha. He would cure him of his leprosy. So his wife informs him about this, and he listens, and he approaches his boss, the king of Syria, asking for permission to travel to Israel to meet with Israel's king. Naaman brings with him an abundance of gifts, 6,000 shekels of gold. Ten shekels was the annual wage of a common laborer in those days, and so that means Naaman is bringing with him 600 times that amount plus 10 talents of silver and 10 changes of clothing, all for the king of Israel. Now notice what he's doing. Remember, the girl said it was the prophet in Samaria who could cure him. So why did Naaman go straight to the king in Samaria? And why did he bring this abundance of gifts? Well, it's because Naaman is doing what any great and accomplished person would do when seeking a favor. Go straight to the top. Naaman's thinking to himself, I'm a pretty important person. Sure, I've got this spot. I know, I'm sick. I need a cure. But still, I'm, I'm a pretty important person. So I'm going to go to the king's palace where important people live because I assume that's where I'm going to find God. I assume that God resides with the important, with the great and accomplished. And if I want God's help, well, then I know I'm going to need to pay for it because there's, there's no freebies in life. I didn't get to the top by being a freeloader. I had to work for it. I had to pay hard work to get to where I am. So I got to bring something. And if 
we're going to be asking God to heal such a great and important person like myself, then it's probably going to have to be a very great gift. So I'm going to bring all of this gold, all this silver, and changes of clothing. All of that makes sense to Naaman. It really makes sense to the world. It's what people expect from religion. Naaman is doing what all great and accomplished people assume that they should do when they get religious. They try to negotiate with God. I'll do this. I'll give up that. I'll keep these rules. I'll change in these particular ways. But Lord, I want something in return. A cure. A blessing. Prayers answered. Sins forgiven. Eternal salvation. Whatever it is, I'm negotiating with God in order to get what I want. That's how you approach religion. That's how Naaman approached the God of Israel. He tried to make a deal. But it's not that easy. It's not that easy. If you want God to bless you or to heal you or to save you, you you can't make a deal with him because you really have nothing to bargain with. He is the all-sufficient God. He is fully satisfied within himself. He has no needs for you to supply. And even if you do bring your righteous deeds, they are but filthy rags in the eyes of God, his holy, pure eyes. So you too have to realize that you are harder to cure than you realize. Negotiating with God will never work. Now, the king of Israel, yes, he was a bad king, but at least he knew better than to think that the Lord God was the kind of God that you can negotiate with, as if you could just pay the right price and and have him in your debt owing you. Yes, in religion, you could do that, but in biblical faith, when you're dealing with the God of the Bible, you just can't do that. He doesn't work in that way. And that's why in verse 7, the king of Israel is so frustrated. He essentially says, this king of Syria is trying to pick a fight with me. He's trying to start a quarrel. He might be able to negotiate with his Syrian gods as king. He might have some leverage over his gods, but but not in my case. I'm the king of of Israel, of the God of Israel. I I have nothing to bargain with. I, I have no sway over the God of Israel. And that's why the king is distraught, not knowing what to do with Naaman's request and all of his expectations. But Elijah hears about the king's frustrations, and he tells the king of Israel, just send him over to me. Send Naaman over to my place. Elijah has good news for Naaman. For while it's true that he is harder to cure than he realizes, because there's really nothing that he can give, sacrifice or promise in order to turn God's hand, but there still is a cure available for him. But sometimes, well, sometimes the cure is found in the simplest yet hardest thing to accept. And that, my friends, is the third revealing fact about the great and accomplished, that they are simpler to cure than they want to believe. They are simpler to cure than they want to believe. Let's return to the story. When Naaman arrives at Elisha's house, he, he's annoyed that Elisha doesn't come out of the house to greet him, that he just sends a messenger to tell him, quote, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. 
Now, Naaman is offended by that. He expected some grand gesture of healing. Look at verse 11. Naaman was angry. Verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. You see, in Naaman's mind, he's a great man who can do great things. He's like, washing a river? Really? That's all you want me to do? Anyone can do that. I'm a mighty man of valor. Ask me to do something mighty. Ask me to scale a mountain or, or, or to, 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 to defeat a monster. Hercules was given his 12 labors, right? He had to slay the, the, the mean lion. He had to kill the many-headed hydra. He's a great man who did great things. All you want me to do is just wash myself? Come on. I'm offended. But that's what biblical faith does. It offends our overinflated view of ourselves. Now, now religion won't do that. Religion will agree with you. Religion will say, yeah, if God's going to bless someone or answer someone's prayer, then it's going to be the one who does something great for him, for the one who's hardworking, for someone who's great and accomplished. That makes perfect sense to religion. But biblical faith says, go and wash yourself in the Jordan. That's it. That's it? Any fool can do that. Any child can do that. Any weakling, any immoral person, anyone can do that. And that's the point. And yet that's why it's so offensive to great men. Because great men expect to be asked to do great things. Which is why Naaman's lowly servants don't understand why he's so hesitant. They plead with him, sir. Sir, did did, did the prophet actually say to you, just go and wash and be clean? Why aren't you doing it? Did he actually make a straightforward promise to you? What are you waiting for? Why don't you go do it? It's because, like we said, God's solution to our problems, his cure to our sickness, lies in the simplest yet hardest thing to accept. Naaman was offered a free healing Free salvation. So simple. But he wasn't ready for that. He wasn't ready for something so simple. He was ready to pay a pretty penny. He was ready to perform a mighty feat. He wasn't ready for free grace. What this story is affirming is the fact that it's actually really hard to accept what God has to offer you for free. Salvation by grace alone, free grace alone, that's hard to accept. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but just think about it with me. If God heals and saves in response to what we give to him, what we do for him, well then, at that point, in that relationship, he's essentially functioning as a boss. And his healing or his salvation would be our rightful wages. It's what we're due. Now, in that relationship as a boss, he does have a lot of authority over us. He can tell me what to do. He could tell you what to do. But there are limits to that, isn't there? Because in the end, in this kind of business arrangement, 
I'm still in control. If I conclude that God is asking just way too much of me or becoming unreasonable in his demands, then I can always quit. I can always just walk away from this business arrangement. But if God heals me and saves me by grace alone, without a view to what I give to him or do for him, if I am completely in his debt, then he's not my boss whom I work for. He's my master whom I serve. And that's why it's so hard to accept a free gift of grace. Because if I accept it, then there are no limits to what God can ask of me. I am totally in his debt. I, I surrender complete control over to him. Salvation by grace alone, I hope you see, friends, is the simplest and easiest of solutions. But do you also see how it can be the hardest thing to accept? Especially, especially for people like us who pride ourselves in being so great and accomplished. Christianity teaches that Naaman's leprosy really illustrates a deeper condition that's plaguing all of mankind, including us. His condition led to the hardening and, and, and to the numbing of his skin and would eventually result in him being cast out from the royal court. But friends, what's far worse, what is far scarier is what we would call leprosy, not of the skin, but of the heart. I'm talking about your sin condition, which leads to the hardening and numbing of your soul and eventually results in you being cast out, cast out from God's court into outer darkness. That is our tragic diagnosis. It's for all of us. We're all in that boat. But here, my friends, here's the good news. Because at the heart of the Christian message is God's free grace to freely and to fully heal your soul. And all you have to do, all you have to do is trust in Jesus. That's it. You trust in Jesus. And I know you're thinking, well, that's, that's it. Oh, come on. That's, that's too easy to accomplish so great a salvation. It's got to be harder than that. Well, you're actually right. A mighty feat has to be performed. A mighty work needs to be done. But don't you see? The good news is you can't do it, but Jesus can. Jesus has to do the mighty feat for you. And in the gospel, it says that he has already done it. It is finished. Jesus scaled that mountain for you. Jesus fought and defeated that monster, that dragon, for you. He defeated death by his own death. He performed the mighty feat that you expected you had to do, and now he offers his healing and his salvation to you for free, free grace. Remember, if you receive that free grace, then there are now no limits to what Jesus can ask of you. You are eternally in his debt. He's completely in control over your life. It's not like religion, my friends. You don't negotiate with Jesus. You don't enter into a contractual business arrangement with him. No, in biblical faith, Jesus gets to call all the shots in your life. He reigns supreme over every aspect 
And slowly but surely, every aspect of your life is transformed and changed to reflect his glory. Your entire life is going to be dedicated to making him look great and to accomplish great things for him. He'll change the entire orientation of your life if you receive his grace. And that's how you know. That's how you know if you truly have received that grace, if you truly have been healed by Jesus and transformed for the better, if the orientation of your life begins to also change. So here's the fourth revealing fact about the great and accomplished. Once cured, they are more devoted than ever before. Their life orientation is now completely different. Let's pick back up in verse 14. Naaman swallows his pride. He does go and wash seven times in that Jordan River, and he comes out perfectly clean. And then he returns to Elisha, and he confesses now his faith in the Lord God alone. Listen to verse 15. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. That's huge. That's a huge change, a huge transformation for someone who came from a very polytheistic pagan background. He's believing But then he offers that extravagant gift that he brought for the king. He now offers it to the prophet, Elisha. But the prophet promptly refuses because he doesn't want Naaman to think that even after the fact, after he gets saved, that he can somehow pay back God. The whole point of God saving you by free grace is that you never have to pay him back because the fact is you can't. So Naaman has a powerful experience of the grace of God. And he comes away more devoted to the Lord than ever before. I think that's clearly seen in the request that he makes to Elisha, starting in verse 17. First, he he makes two requests. First, Naaman asks for two mule loads of dirt from Israel to be brought back with him. Because from this day forth, he vows he's only going to worship the Lord God. He's only going to worship Yahweh. And he's going to do that by, by, by creating this little plot of dirt perhaps maybe in his backyard, and he's going to do all of his prayers and all of his sacrificing on that plot of dirt from Israel as he focuses on Yahweh. But then he asks for a, for a pardon in advance. Look at, look at verse 18. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimen to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimen, when I bow, bow myself in the house of Rimen, the Lord, pardon your servant in this matter. You see what's happening here? Naaman realizes that by, by receiving God's free grace, he has now surrendered complete control. God now calls, calls the shots over every aspect of his life, including his work life. His newfound faith is not something that he just reserves for one day of the week on the Sabbath. No, for seven days of the week. He takes his faith wherever he goes. Wherever he goes, he knows the Lord is now in control. So now that he's back home and back at his job, because he has experienced free grace, because he has been healed by the Lord, Naaman now is wrestling with, how do I do my job? How do I do my job well in such a way that still honors God and doesn't compromise my faith? His job as kind of like the right-hand man of the king 
requires him to occasionally take the king into the temple of a Syrian god, the god Rumun. Perhaps the king was old and he just needed someone to lean, lean onto and hold on to his arm. Well, Naaman, Naaman wants to do his job. He wants to do his job well. But now, more so than ever, he wants to honor and glorify God. And so he asks Elijah if it's going to be okay if the Lord will pardon him in this matter if he still does his job. But his, he's not, his heart is not there to worship the pagan idol He's just trying to do his job well. And Elisha assures him that it's okay. Go in peace. You have to understand that this is what happens when you get changed by grace. You start actually wrestling with questions like this, wondering how is your faith going to affect all these various aspects of your life, including your career? This is what you can expect when you're dealing with biblical faith. It's so different when you're just meddling with mere religion. In religion, you're just negotiating with God. So you're just telling God, okay, God, I'm going to give you my Sunday mornings. Uh, I'll also give you uh, one of my weeknights for small group. Okay, I'll dedicate those times to you. But what I do from Monday to Friday, from 9 to 5, that's, that's me. That's my time. That's, that's work. That's separate from your time, Lord. There, I've got my own goals. I've got my own agenda. I'm going to go about achieving them in my own way because work in religion, work is, is your, your, your thing. That's, that's your realm of control. I'm not concerned there so much about how to honor God at work or what might compromise my faith because in the workplace, I still reign. I, I still call the shots. In religion, you can do that. But in biblical faith, in Christianity, Jesus saved me freely by his grace. I don't give anything to him. I don't do anything for him to get that. And so I am totally in his debt. He reigns over all of me, every realm, every aspect of my life. No negotiating involved, just submitting. There's only following hard after Jesus, trying to honor him in my work life, in my home life, in my, my, my neighborhood, my community, in everything that I'm doing, trying to honor God. And so if you're a Christian, you should be thinking like this. You should be thinking like Naaman, asking the same questions, trying to figure out how to pursue a career, how to do excellent work while at work, while at the same time, most importantly, honoring God and glorifying him, worshiping him and not your work. What is that going to look like for you, my friends? How will you pursue a career and be successful in it without turning work into an idol? How are you going to work in medicine without making health an idol? How are you going to work in finance without worshiping money? How are you going to pursue a career in the sciences without worshiping knowledge or technology? How, how are you going to work in the arts without worshiping beauty? How are you going to function as a homemaker without worshiping your own family? Religious people who deal with mere religion, they don't bother with those questions. They don't ask those kind of questions. They don't feel the tension between religion and work because they're separate. They're separate compartmentalized aspects of their lives. But Christians don't have that luxury. Christians who deal with biblical faith, who serve a Lord who reigns over all aspects of life, we have to work through these type of questions all the time.
You know, as we've been preaching through these heroes of the faith, we've been warning against too quickly identifying yourself with the hero in the story because in reality, we more closely resemble the Israelites who are more likely being the ones delivered and rescued by the hero. Well, in today's story, friends, I think we find ourselves in like manner identifying not so much with the hero of the story, not with Elisha, but with Naaman. And so the question I want to leave you with is this. Which Naaman are you? Which Naaman do you identify with in this story? The one still trying to negotiate with God? Trying to get him on your side? To get him to do you a favor? To cure you? To save you? Or do you identify with a Naaman who has humbled himself? who trusts God at his word, who has received his free grace, who has been washed and cleansed, and who is now devoted to the Lord, trying in every way to honor and glorify him. Of course, I hope and pray that you come away identifying with the latter. And it's simple, really. If you want to identify with that Naaman, all it takes is faith, trusting in the promises of God. Believe, and friend, you will be saved. Father, thank you for taking us through a familiar story and helping us to see it through your eyes. Help us, Lord, to recognize the weakness, the sickness in our own lives, the desperate neediness we have of a cure, and help us to realize that there's nothing in us that can bring about and accomplish that salvation, that cure, that we are debtors to you, that we rely solely on your grace to save us. So Lord, for everyone here, may you shower your grace upon us. Remind us, refresh us anew with a feeling sense of being forgiven by your grace. But for some here, it might be for the first time. Lord, give your grace to them. Help them to believe and to receive your cure, your gospel, your salvation. And transform us, O Lord, from that experience that we might now live our lives wholly devoted to you for your glory. It's in your name we pray.